church, if you would join me in turning to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Tonight marks really the beginning of, I think, most of the rest of the way. These will be uh, chapter-long messages. So we'll be covering a chapter at a, at a time. Obviously, next week we won't meet, and then um, I think I get two in a row, and then Brother Brock preaches. So, um, so I'll get Nehemiah 6 and Nehemiah 7, and he gets Nehemiah 8. Uh, so you get a week to study a chapter, right? That's pretty good. Um, let's read this together, Nehemiah 5. Let's examine God's Word together. I hope, by the way, that this isn't the first time you've read this. Um, so I'm praying that so. If not, that's okay too, because we know that, that God still speaks through His Word, right? Here's what the Word of God says. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Verse 6. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother." Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us off this usury. Uh, Please give them back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, uh, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. And then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and took an oath from, uh, from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may uh, he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Verse 14. Moreover, from that day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year of this 20, the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants uh, were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O God, for good, 
according to all that I've done for this people. You thankful for the word of God this evening? Amen. Brother Justin, come and preach the word to us. Well, good evening, church. Can you, can you guys hear me back there? Okay. Sometimes it's hard to tell. So, just thought I'd check. Well, if you have your Bibles, please keep them open to Nehemiah chapter 5. Usually I say, like, open your Bibles. And Cody's already done that for me. Thanks, man. Makes my job so much easier. I love it. So, we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 5 tonight as we talk about the conflict within. The conflict within. So, conflict with those close to us is really something that we try to avoid, isn't it? It's something that we really, we feel like is, that we want to avoid as, as much as possibly can. Many a church, many a family has been torn apart from conflict like this. It's a beloved tool in the, in the, in the hands of Satan, the world, our flesh for stealing, for killing and destroying. But the good news is that there's nothing outside the sovereignty of our God. That even conflict within your family, even conflict within our church, even conflict in other places, that it, it's still subject to the Lord. Not only is he able, but he intends to bring growth and unity through it uh, for the advancement of his kingdom. You know, recently on Sunday nights, we've seen uh, God's enemies attacking his people from the outside. We saw tools that God's enemies use from the outside against God's people. Um, and really, as a result, as we start off chapter 5, let me give you a little bit of context here. Chapter 4, um, God's enemies have been attacking from the outside, and the result was... Really, in a lot of ways, Judea was cut off from its neighbors, from its trading partners. And so, um, in some ways, you could see there was a kind of an economic famine that was taking place. You've got, you may have wares to sell, but you don't have no wares to sell the wares. That's a problem. So, but the good thing was that things were changing. God, by his grace, uh, was, uh, was working in and through his people. And so, the people were working doubly hard to advance the work on the wall. We even saw toward the end of, the, of chapter four, that everyone who lived outside the city, the farmers and people in the rural areas, they were, they were um, basically commanded by Nehemiah to come in and to, to basically to stay the nights inside the city so they could work on the wall through the days. Uh, this was really tough. This was really tough for farmers and for people out in those rural areas in particular um, because they're leaving everything behind for a long period of time to get these, this task done, this rebuilding of the wall. They had sacrificed their own crops, their own livelihood um, for the improvement of the walls. And this started making for an agricultural famine. These, these fields that, are, that were supposed to be taken care of, supposed to be um, producing crops, uh, were, were starting to lie fallow. And, um, and so there's, this, is, this is becoming a problem here. Others in Jerusalem at the same time have more than enough resources, not only to survive this famine, not only to survive this trying time, but they seem to, they seem to be able to thrive in the midst of it, to make really shrewd business deals in the midst of it, to benefit from the difficulty of others. Um, and so when you, so what we have here is we have poor, powerless people who are sacrificing much to build the wall. We also have rich, powerful people um, within the kingdom, by the way, uh, who, rather than sacrificing, seem to be gaining at the expense of the poor sacrifice. 
Conflict is a Bruin in the people of God. And the, the good thing here is we kind of zoom back out and think about, about conflict in general is that really we don't have to be shocked by this. Conflict happens, right? Conflict happens because there are people present, right? As long as there are people, there will be conflicts in this broken, sin-twisted world that we live in. Because the problem is not so much the world. The problem is us, mankind who lives in the world. And so the good news is, again, that we don't have to be shocked by this. It's part of life. Instead, when conflict comes, how we respond to it is the key. So if I could sum up the whole, the whole message in one statement, it would be this. When conflict comes, we must long for and work for the glory of God and the good of his people. And I would add a, 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 a phrase to this, by faith. Because the last thing that I want to do here is for, is for us to think, oh, well, we just got to get out there and put on our big boy, big girl clothes and just do this thing. You, you can't do this thing. I can't do this thing. We desperately need God working in us, producing fruit in us to do it. And so as I, want to, I want to kind of give you three little, I guess, snapshots, you might say, um, of, of what's happening here uh, and, and really showing what's happening and how God in his grace and his sovereignty is dealing with not, not only uh, difficulty and conflict coming from outside, but now conflict brewing within the walls of Jerusalem as well. So first, I want you to see the outcry. The outcry, verses one through five. It says, now there was a great outcry of the people and all their, of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For though, there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging fields, our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already and we are helpless. We are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So verse one tells us there is this outcry. Literally, it's a cry of distress. And it's coming from husbands and wives. It's coming from multiple groups of people. Nearly everybody is upset. And they're upset because they fit into one of three categories at least, right? Some of them may be experiencing more than one. <clears throat> but uh, at least three problems that I can see here. First of all, they had big families. Wait a minute. That's the problem? That's the first thing they list, right? Where our, our sons and our daughters are many, right? The Bible actually says this is a blessing. This is a good thing. So why is it a problem? Well, it's a problem because it's a blessing that needs to be fed. I remember going, making the shift from being a, two, a, a couple to a, a couple with a child. That's a big change. And then I remember when that child started eating real food. And that was a big change. And then we went from uh, a family of three or a three family as my, as my Hadassah would say a three family to a four family and then that fourth one started eating food too and we just started seeing our bills our, our Chick-fil-A receipts started multiplying right goodness I mean the cake pops from, from Starbucks alone I mean it's, ooh, it's, it's intense 
And so it's a blessing that is increasingly difficult to keep up with because they're being fruitful and multiplying just as God commanded them to. This is a good thing, but it's a, it's, it's a good problem, but it's still a problem. Because they worked so hard on the wall, these farmers didn't even have time to work their fields to get the food they needed to survive. They need to, pay, they need to buy the food instead. They have to buy the food, but, the pro, but their poverty made that impossible. So first, they had big families. Second, they're mortgaging their property. They used their fields and their vineyards and their houses as collateral against loans that they were receiving. But they, were still having, they still had little or no means of paying back those loans and we're getting a hint here that this is a loan that's being charged with interest. And we'll talk more about that later. So they had big families. They were mortgaging their property. And uh, they're taking out loans to pay uh, property taxes. They're taking out loans to pay property taxes. King Darius, Darius, however you want to pronounce that, especially taxed land that produced. Land that produced. And that's why you see here they're mentioning... Um, in verse 4, you see they're mentioning fields and vineyards especially because that was land that produced something. And, and the commentators really got into like how they calculated this tax. And I, just, I was glad that I wasn't a landowner in, ancient, in the ancient Middle East because it, it seemed difficult for me just in a Bible commentary to kind of wrap my head around and how it changed over time. Uh, but it, again, the taxes got increasingly more because it was factoring in what they had previously yielded in addition to what they currently yielded. That just doesn't sound fair, does it? Yet that was the, way, that was the law of the land. You know? who, was, who was Judea to take on big old, uh, big old uh, Persia at that point? It, it's not going to go well for you. They, they've learned that already, haven't they? And the Bible tells us in each of these situations, their outcry was not necessarily against, against the Persians. It wasn't necessarily against Nehemiah as the... As the leader, it was against their own brothers. It says in verse 1, it says the outcry was against their, their Jewish brothers. They were having to give up their own children to serve as slaves to their own creditors, who were Jews. Their own people, their own family, and their sons and daughters would serve until they had to pay back that debt. Now, and that is, that's provided for in the law, but there were limits. There was a six-year term limit. And if a year of jubilee, which I just love that word, and I can't imagine why, but, but if a year of jubilee came around, then everyone was declared free of their debts. And so there was provision in here that it wasn't debt forever. There was a means of, of paying back that debt, but there were limits. And from what, and what the, context, the context seems to suggest to us that those things were not being observed. These are the same kind of things, uh, not observing jubilee, not not letting the land lie fallow, charging each other and doing these things. These were some of the very same things that put them in Babylon to begin with. And yet so quickly, after returning, they're back to the old ways. Their own sons and daughters would serve until they had paid the debt back. Some of them had even given up their daughters as their creditor's second wife. And that's, that's, a, that's that weird phrase there. Some of them have been given up already. The idea here is that some of their daughters, instead of just being servants that were subject to terms, uh, they would just be married off to that family as a, as a second wife. Uh, and so just further and further down the order. And so this was a different kind of humiliation, but it was a humiliation nonetheless. And it says, and they say in all this, that we're powerless. 
We have nothing to be able to, to make this up. We can't change anything. We can't do anything. We're powerless. And the rich among them, their own countrymen had exploited them. But I want you to think about this. And this, I, I want to explain all this out because we see this was not just a microwave type problem that, you know, press the button, bing, it's done. It, that's not the way this had crept up in the lives of the, of the, of the Israelites. This is something that took time. This is something that had crept in over time. This was not just a, hey, we're having this, we're having this, the, the, our, um, our conflict from the outside is, is lessening now. And so now there's this opportunity to sin. No, this had been building throughout this whole time. So think about the patience of God here. God in his mercy is not, is, is waiting for a time to, a fullness of time to come when uh, by his design, the sin is being brought up. Someone's, cry, someone's shouting no more. I think that's, that's amazing the way that God orchestrates all things for his glory. You know, when I cook, um, one of my least favorite sounds is the sound of a, a pot that's boiling over. Um, one, because that means it's going to be really difficult to clean up. That's not fun. Um, but also it means that it's a, it's a really sure sign that I've neglected something, something that I've forgotten about, that I've gotten distracted. Even if other things are going really well, like even if I have other things that I'm preparing that are working really well and I'm thinking, I'm doing great. I'm, Chelsea's going to be so impressed. And yeah. And I think in some ways uh, we can see here that conflict can be like a pot that overboils and that it, it's a signal to us that something's been neglected. And, and I'm so thankful for this text because I don't know that I ever would have seen it that way before. Um, how many times have you ever realized through a conflict that you had, you had neglected something in your heart? That you, had, like, uh, like Pastor Cody and, uh, and Corey and these other guys have said, you know, you, how many times that through conflict have you realized that you left a, a gap in the wall? There was an undefended place. There was a weak place. And so in that, I mean, for that alone... We could say, as unthinkable as it sounds, Lord, thank you for conflict. Because it's part of this process where, uh, by which you're, you're putting us in the fire to refine us. That even in this, because what do, we, what do we normally think when a conflict comes up? We think, we want to think somewhere in the deepest, darkest parts of our hearts that maybe God's forgotten us. Why is, God, why am I here? Why, why did you let me get here? And sometimes that's the very means by which God is saying, I, I'm fulfilling my Philippians promise where I'm, I'm, I'm that work that I began in you, Justin, I'm gonna bring it through to completion. And this is one step in that process. Praise God that he reveals our sin to us sometimes through this uncomfortable conflict. So first we see the outcry. Now let's look at the confrontation. Verses six or 18. Then uh, Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and I, contend, and I contended with the nobles and rulers. And I said to them, you are exacting usury. I and there, therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers that, who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They, um, then they were silent. And they could not find a word to speak. 
Again, I said, the thing which you're doing is not good. I love how blunt he is here. Like, that thing? Yeah, that's not good. Um, Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give them back this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. And also the hundredth part, that's the interest, by the way, of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. And they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from, this, from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Man, that's good. Nehemiah is understandably angry when he finds out what's happening. So what did he do? Verse seven says, first he consulted with himself. He pondered, he carefully considered what to do with himself and concluded that he could not allow this to continue. If he allowed it to continue, then it would, become, it would, it would pop up again stronger another day. And so sometimes things need to be faced head on. That doesn't mean that we need to be reckless. It doesn't mean that we be, need to be careless, but sometimes things need to be faced head on. And Nehemiah did that. He confronts them with the sin of usury. And, the, and I want you to see this. He, he does, there are a couple things that happen here. First, we see a confrontation. The confrontation. Um, he confronted the rich with the sin of usury. They were using their brothers and sisters desperate in need for personal gain by giving loans with an unreasonable cost, with an unreasonable amount of interest. They've prized their own gain over their brothers and sisters' need. They've neglected their own, their, own, their own fellow Jews, their own family. Notice verse seven says again, not only did Nehemiah go directly to those in sin, which I think is wise, right? It sounds a lot like Matthew 18, right? He, he goes, goes to them, brings the charge before them, and then it's a public sin. And so he, he, he brings the charge openly, publicly, so that everyone sees what's happening. So Nehemiah wisely addressed it in a public assembly. Verse eight says he he calls them to think about the context of their sin um, within the nation. First, within the nation, they've been uh, returned as those who've been scattered as slaves among the nations. And he even mentions that, that according to our ability, we've been buying these people back from other nations. Wow. Countrymen buying out their own countrymen from, the, from, from other nations so they can come back home. And, and as they get back, the rich Israelites are now locally enslaving their own brothers, their own sisters, whom they just redeemed from the nations. Sounds like the, the servant who, whose debt was forgiven. And then he turns around and demands of his, of his co-worker it's, it's, do they not see the ridiculousness of what's happening? Verse nine says, again, I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? If verse eight challenged them to think about the context within Jerusalem, verse nine challenges them to, and us too, to think about the context outside. 
these people were effectively flinging the door wide open for mocking and for hatred of the enemy. It's as if the nations have gathered around. Of course, you know they're watching for an opportunity to mock because we already saw in previous chapters how the things that they were saying to mock them about the wall and about the materials and all these things, there was some truth to them, right? And I think it was, I think it was Corey or Brock, I can't remember, guys, I'm sorry. But nothing hurts worse than mocking that comes with a grain of truth. There's something about that. And it's as if they're saying, see them? <laughs> they're, all their talk about being separate, being holy, worshiping their God, rebuilding all these things, they're no different than us. It's as if that's what Sinbalat and, and Tobiah are, are saying to themselves at, the, at this very moment. They're making themselves into a tool in the hands of the enemy. Not only a tool against themselves, but against their king and their Lord. When we look toward our own personal interest and fight inwardly, we're adding fuel to the fire of the people, of, of those around us. We're making ourselves weapons in the arsenal of the enemy. Of the enemy. Church, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be our legacy. So again, we see a confrontation. Next, we see a response. Next, we see a response. How do they respond at the end of verse eight? And I love this. It says, then they were silent and could not find a word to say. They didn't respond. They didn't try to justify. They didn't, they didn't try to uh, prove that they were in the right about what they were doing. They just owned what they did. They responded with a humble Silence, effectively pleading guilty for what they've done. And then in verse, verses 12 and 13, they promise to repent. They promise to a, a change in direction. Praise God. I mean, this is, this is God's work here. Praise God for every sinner that repents. This is God at work. And I want to ask you the question then, the last time that someone confronted you with sin... Someone, that someone confronted you with your own sin and you knew, you knew that, they were, that you were wrong. How did you respond? In my own heart, I, I know that's exactly when I, I, wanna, I wanna say something. I wanna desperately prove and I usually say something foolish. You don't believe me? Ask my wife. And, uh, but that's, that's our tendency, right? That's because we're bent towards sinning. And so, uh, there's a whole lot of things that are going wrong with these people here, but praise God for what he's doing in their hearts right here. That they don't even try to justify. They just say, you know what, you're right. Church, we need to have that kind of reputation because we're, we're not gonna be right all the time. What about having a reputation of, of being willing to admit when we're wrong? Graciously, humbly, to admit that we were wrong and to ask forgiveness. There's a lot of power to that. Next, we see accountability in this letter C. When those in sin promised to repent, praise God that Nehemiah loved them and took their word for it, right? Just said, we're gonna move forward. It's gonna be all good from here. No, what does he do? What does he do? He says, so I called in the priests and had them take an oath. 
right? He's building in systems of accountability for them. Praise God. Have you ever had somebody like that in your life? It's like, you, you say, well, it's going to be different. I'm going to do this. And, and you're like, okay, I'm going to walk with you through this. And that's the last thing you want. Sometimes in my life, it, it reveals the fact that I just, I said what I said to kind of get them off my back, right? And praise God for people that walk with us and hold us accountable. I'm so thankful to be a part of a team in ministry here at Great Gables where I have, I have people that, that are around me and that, that call me out when I'm wrong. The last thing we need is a, is a bunch of people that all, that all say yes, yes, yes to the same person. So do you have people like that in your life? So I want you to see there are a couple of ways that he does this with accountability. Um, Verse 10, he sets, he, set his, he sets his dealings as an example, giving loans with no interest. Uh, verse 12, he says, so I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. And then thir- verse 13, there's a warning. He says, I shook out my garment uh, and said, this is kind of like the way that, that it would have been like something, um, would have been a fold in the garment, kind of like a pocket. So like probably there were things in his pocket that he just kind of emptied. His, he was emptying his pockets basically and saying, may this happen. Um, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus he may be shaken out and emptied. Um, May those who don't do according to this promise be revealed outwardly for what they are inwardly, right? This is not like somebody who turns back and who suddenly becomes not a Christian anymore. Well, you know, God's gonna cast them off. No, this is God clarifying, just like Romans 9 says, that they are not all Israel who are called Israel. That there are people who who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and then deny him by their lifestyle. And so it's showing, it's a public presentation of the fact that there is overwhelming evidence that they don't trust in the Lord. And I I think it's interesting here, the, the progression that's taking place, it looks a lot like Matthew 18, doesn't it? And I love that. I love that because that when I see the New Testament of this, uh, this New Testament version of this given by Jesus himself, we see that the whole goal is not to confront, it's not to prove yourself right, it's not to cast someone out that you don't like, the whole goal. Church, what's the whole goal of church discipline? It's restoration. It's restoration. All of this is to restore his people. It's systems of accountability on one side, right? warnings and accountability but on the other side it's also illustrating for those who don't trust in God but don't maybe don't realize it themselves have fooled themselves so that they can see an outward demonstration and know maybe I'm not in maybe not I'm not in the Lord maybe I'm not a believer and it's such a difficult thing to go through it's such a difficult thing on the church side, but also on the, the side of the one who is being, this is being done against. But the goal is restoration. We must be willing to love our brothers and sisters enough to risk short-term harm. Short-term hurt, maybe is a better word, for long-term joy in Christ. And that is a difficult thing to say. But church, it is worth it. It is worth it. 
So we see um, the outcry. We see the confrontation. Thirdly, we see the example. The example, verses 14 through 19. Moreover, on the day that I was appointed, uh, on, from the day that I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the king Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten uh, the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even, uh, even their, servants, their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on the wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered here for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from, from the nations that were around us. Now that, uh, now that which was prepared each day, it was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. This would be enough for like 250 people at least. Interesting. Um, uh, once every 10 days, all sorts of wine uh, were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Again, we see Nehemiah in this passage, just like the ones we've talked about before, where he is, he's acting as a restorer. God has placed him here for this season to help to restore his people. I mean, his name means help us here. That's, that's a good name, right? Um, we see him uh, bringing in a new government into Jerusalem, one that was more concerned about the glory of God and the good of people than its own personal gain. In a couple of ways here. First, we see no allowance, right? Makes me think of like being like 10. No allowance. Um, Nehemiah broke with the tradition of, on food allowance set aside for him as the governor. He could have eaten uh, the fruit of the people's struggle. It would have been easy to do. And really, honestly, because that was the prevailing way of doing things, nobody would have faulted him. And yet he didn't. He chose to pay for the food out of his own pocket. So when it talks later on about um, all these people, hundreds of people that are at his table, Nehemiah is paying for that out of his own pocket. That's not government money that's flowing. That's not the people's money. That's Nehemiah's money. And he's glad to do it. Um, he chose to pay for the food out of his own pocket to lessen the burden of his people. He's, he's dipping into his own, his own account. To, to shield his people from burden, unnecessary burden. Next, uh, we see single, a single devotion to the work. Nehemiah came to build the wall. That was the whole reason, right? That's the whole point of this, this book, right? Nehemiah came to build the wall and he personally helped to build it. He didn't just say, hey, you guys go out there and build the wall. He says, all right, let's, let's build the wall. He was in the, he was in the trenches with his people. And it says that he and his servants didn't even buy land for themselves, Right? Land, and land to cultivate, land to develop, land to build things on. And he says, he, we didn't do that. Why? He says, we were here to build the wall. That's the, I mean, 12 years. We're here to work. And we're going to do the same things that everybody else is doing. If everybody else can't, can't be cultivating and building, think we're not going to do that either. Man, I love that. They viewed it as a distraction from the work. So they were completely focused on the task at hand. Third, we see an open door and a full table. Ooh, we see an open door, a full table. All righty. Verse 17 says that 150 people were regularly around this table for meals. Again, Nehemiah paid for all this food out of his own pocket. Praise God. Next, we see a, a, a humble plea. 
Verse 19, remember me, O God, O my God, for good. Hey, there it is. According to all that I've done for this people. Some people will see verse 19 and they see it as, as Nehemiah trying to uh, be self-serving here. Um, but I, from, from what I can see here, it looks, it looks more like Nehemiah is emphasizing that what he has done wasn't for self, um, but that it was, it was out, of, out of a passion for the glory of the Lord and the good of his people. This is somebody who's, by God's work in him, is conforming his will and his desire and his, all this, he's, conf, he's conforming it to God's. You might even say that God is conforming Nehemiah to himself. So this is Nehemiah trusting that God as the judge will look favorably upon those, who can, those whose character is conformed, those whose will is conformed to his. So yes, Nehemiah acted as a restorer in the life of Israel. But in him, we see a glint, a hint of something greater. We see, namely, Jesus Christ, the true and better restorer. He could have, think about this, as we kind of think about this passage that we've seen tonight, he could have lorded over us, couldn't he? He could have ruled over us from heaven and just said, you know, you do your best to get up here. And he would have been totally, he would have been totally okay in doing so. But instead he stepped down off his throne in heaven and he dwelt among us. He could and should have been served by us, uh, but he was singularly devoted to serve us not just out of his own resources, not just paying things out of his own money necessarily, but he gave his life. He gave his absolute best. He gave his life on the cross, redeeming us from slavery to sin. His spirit works inside us and alongside us in our sanctification. He's instructing our hearts in, dis in doctrine. He's applying it to our hearts. He's helping us. And just like we talked about with the open table, there's a day that's coming where he will return. He will come back and he will bring us to himself. He will bring us to his house where we will sit at his table. And he, did, he does all of this out of, a, out of a chief concern for the glory of God. So again, as we, as we view these snapshots in the life, in the life of, in the life of Nehemiah, don't, Please don't look at him as if he's the standard. Christ is the standard. Instead, watch and wonder as God works, as God works in the, in the hearts of Nehemiah and the people. See the fruit that God produces in them and trust, that, and trust God to work in you to make your character and will more like his. So tonight we've seen how when, when conflict comes into the life of God's people, that our desire must be for the glory of God and the good, the good of his people. God is able and he intends to bring unity through it for the advancement of his kingdom. A couple of questions just as we close. First of all, are you aware of any sin in your life at this moment that you haven't repented of? Because we see that in some ways the conflict was what helped to reveal that. At this moment, do you, is there, are you aware of anything that you haven't confessed to him? What prevents you right now from going to him. Doesn't mean you have to stand up and confess it in front of all these people, but, it, but go to him in prayer right now and, and talk with him about that. Confess that to him. Ask, his, ask him for, by his power to work in you to help you to repent of it. Secondly, what's your attitude toward conflict? Are you the kind of person who tends to thrive on conflict? 
or someone who tends to run from conflict? How can you adjust this week based on what we've heard from God's word tonight? And again, it's not that we just say, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna do differently. But instead it's, Lord, help me. Help me to, to have a, a healthy view of what conflict is and how, how, it, how you could be very well using it for my good and for your glory. And then thirdly, last thing, look around you. Take a second, just look around. Look at the faces around you. Look around, go for it. This isn't going on the video anyway. The video's shut down like how many times? So think about these faces as you leave tonight. As you make your way home, as you go throughout your week, think about other faces that you see on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. What motivates the way that you act toward these people? Take some time. Ask the Lord to sift you and to, to reveal to you what your motivations are with that. Why do we, why do we come to church? Why do, we, why do we act the way that we do towards people? Why, do, why are there certain people that we run toward and certain people that we avoid? There may be good reasons for those, but in some cases there may be, there may be sin that's lurking. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a, a weak place in the wall that needs to be rebuilt. And I love this um, because it really are, what's our greatest goal for, for other believers? What's our greatest goal for really for any person? Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's desire for you is that you be conformed to the image of his son. And for, for every person that sits around you, whether they know Christ or not, God's desire for them is that they be conformed to the image of his son. More than we can ever gain from the people around us, more than we can benefit from them, our desire should be like that of Christ. That, that everyone around us, whether they know Christ or not, that they be conformed to the image of his son. That should be our desire, church. Is that our desire? Are we a church that desires to see saints equipped for, for ministry? Are we, are we a church that desires, not just from the pulpit, but from the pews, to see people come to know Jesus, so much so that we're willing to, to do the study that it takes to, to be able to share the gospel with people, to be able to tell people about what God's done for us. Is that our desire? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how you love us. Lord, thank you for how you, um, you revealed to us so many different um, pictures of your character. Lord, we know that Nehemiah is not perfect. Uh, but Lord, we thank you for how we can see clearly in so many ways how you, you patterned him to be like your son or how you were working in him, making him more like Christ, how you were working in your people. I think about their, the way that they confess, the way that they um, applied themselves to the work that they, they gave their word and they did what they said they were going to do. Lord, we, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we thank you for that. Lord, thank you also that you set these things in your word as, a, as an illustration, as a teaching for us. And so Lord, help us. Help us now to be your people, to love each other. Lord, that the world would know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. That we would love those around us that don't know Christ to such a degree that we would share the gospel with them. That repentance 
and forgiveness of sins may be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.